you, Mar. Now, can you hear me in the back? Okay, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Sarah Kennel. She was educated at Princeton University, from which she graduated summa cum laude. She also won the Art History Thesis Prize. She went on to the University of California, Berkeley, taking both her MA and PhD there with a dissertation, Bodies, Statues, Machines, Dance and the Visual Arts in France, 1890 to 1930. While a graduate student, she was a fellow at CASVA, the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts, and a curatorial fellow and a press fellow at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. After completing the PhD, Dr. Kennel returned to Princeton to teach a seminar in 19th century art in 2004, even as she became an assistant curator and for a while acting head of the Department of Photographs at the National Gallery. Dr. Kennel was the curator of Paris in Transition, photographs from the National Gallery of Art. She worked on shows of Nicholas Nixon, Irving Penn, Andre Cortez, and Roger Fenton. She was also the co-curator of the very important exhibition in the forest of Fontainebleau, painters and photographers from Corot to Monet, which was at the National Gallery last year. And this exhibition and the catalog for that has had a tremendous impact on our understanding of the importance of landscape photography in mid-19th century France. She's the author of many essays on the Rite of Spring, on photography in interwar France, on Sonia Delaunay, and Ro Romare Bearden. She has lectured at the Yale University Art Gallery, the Philadelphia Museum, Stanford University, and of course her home institution of the National Gallery, just to name a few of her invited lectures. Her current project is a book on photographic processes before the digital age for which she is a co-author. And when we were planning this course um, some time ago, probably almost two years ago, I had asked uh, C.J. Clark, our, our mutual advisor, for potential speakers on the topics included in this course. And he had one suggestion, Sarah Kennel. So it is my pleasure to introduce her today, Sarah Kennel. Thank you very much. I feel very modernist with my technology here. Um, thank you for that very generous introduction, but also for the opportunity to speak here. Um, I haven't had a chance to speak about this work in a while. It comes from my dissertation, and you're going to get kind of a one-hour overview of some of the issues I touched on, so hopefully put them in one session. Uh, my lecture today is a brief overview of some of the relationships between dance and modernism in France around the First World War. And I want to consider the emergence of dance as a modernist practice, both in and of itself, but also the incorporation of dance into other modernist practices, and in particular, visual arts. And um, it's my argument here that dance, by putting the body at the center of its form, was really one of the most privileged medium through which the experience of modernity could be imagined and represented. So I'll start today by discussing the kinds of dance that emerged around the turn of the century, sort of how and when modern dance became modern, by looking primarily at the influence and the origins of Isadora Duncan's dance practices. And I know that some of you may have seen the Duncan dancers who performed here in the fall. Um, although there were a number of new dances and movement practices that emerged around the turn of the century, hers really was among the most significant for the further development of modern dance. And after analyzing why and how Duncan's dance was so powerfully appealing 
and what proposals it made about the modern body, we'll turn to a form of another, another form of modernism in dance by looking at two of Vaslav Nikinsky's ballets, The Afternoon of the Fawn and The Rite of Spring. And I know that um, you will, I'm sure, be talking about the music for at least The Rite of Spring and possibly Afternoon of the Fawn in, in other lectures here. Um, I will make my general caveat that I'm not a musicologist, so I'm really going to focus mostly on dance today, and I hope you get that perspective um, soon elsewhere. Um, I want to examine these ballets specifically as modernist ballets, both by looking at their choreographic form, um, what about their movement, style, designs, and themes makes them so modern, but also how they drew upon and prevailed um, and intersected with other prevailing artistic and intellectual currents. And um, I'll close the discussion with a brief brief sort of analysis of the Rite of Spring's modernism in relationship to primitivism um, by examining closely both the choreography and the critical response to this ballet. I think we can begin to understand not only the nature of Nijinsky's modernism, but more generally some of the complex issues at the heart of much modernist art around the First World War, issues of primitivism, race, sexuality, relationships between mass culture and high culture at this moment. Dance's centrality to modern art, and indeed to the ways that culture could express what it meant to be modern, emerged rapidly and dramatically at the turn of the 19th century. Indeed, up until about the 1890s or so, dance in Europe, and specifically in France, at least the professional forms of it practiced on stage, was considered a fairly retrograde, if not totally moribund, art. The kinds of spectacles produced at the Paris Opera, for example, were rarely hailed as artistic achievements. With some exceptions, of course, music was often patched together, storylines were jumbled, and choreography was generally neither technically nor artistically compelling. And this is quite in distinction to um, classical ballet um, as it had emerged in the 1820s and 30s. Indeed, uh, the myriad pleasures of attending the ballet in the Second Empire and Third Republic France, it appears that choreography was far less intriguing than the possibility of viewing exposed female bodies engaged in what was essentially an eroticized form of labor. Indeed, if dance was associated with modern art and modernity at this moment, it was more as a cipher for the expression of modern forms of social relations or economic exchange, not as an artistically avant-garde um, performance in and of itself. The implied exchange economy of Degas' image, for example, in the foyer of 1876-77, offers an elliptical commentary upon the hidden or partially visible relations of class and gender that underlay the highly visible ballet performances. The title of the image refers to what was called the foyer de la danse, or sort of the performance green room at the um, Paris Opera. But this wasn't just a place for the performers, however. It was a place that was open to private subscribers who, in turn for their financial donations, were given the opportunity to meet, flirt, and arrange liaison with the dancers, who in turn supplemented their meager subsistence wages through, the, through a kind of unofficial patronage qua prostitution. Degas' image, which is structured through a series of formal and psychological contrasts, presents the foyer as an anonymous and ominous space of free market exchange. The ballerina's upright posture, turned away from our gaze but facing the slumped, seated, middle-aged men, suggests that she's consciously presenting herself for inspection. 
her back is to the viewer, so we, can't, we can only hazard a guess as to her face, facial expressions or gesture. But she does appear to extend her left hand. She might simply be raising her tutu, but her hand disappears at the point where it intersects the right hand of the man in front of her. Degas' brushwork is elusive here, and the amb ambiguous spatial relations between the dancer and the gentleman further complicates this reading of touch. But I think this potential, not quite visible exchange at the heart of the image speaks more broadly to the late 19th century's imagination of the ballet and the ballerina as a place for illicit and commodified sexuality. Now, of course, the fin de siècle um, witnessed other forms of dance that was considered modern, you know, besides the, the, the ballet, the politics around the ballet, and many of the Parisian dance halls and cabarets included various forms um, of popular dancing, such as the loose-limbed, high-flying kicks of the can-can, which we see here in Seurat's great can-can uh, or le chaou. But what was most modern about the can-can, I think, was not exactly its choreography, but rather its participation in a kind of uh, manufactured bohemia, if we are to accept Seurat's kind of vision of, of this um, sardonic representation of, of pleasure. And as a side, while on the surface ballet and the can-can might seem antithetical, um, in many ways they both participated in this kind of same um, spectacular economy and specular economy, but also even just physically, they rely on the same kind of basic principle of the core of the body as a sort of unmoving center where all of the movement and articulation happens in the limbs and sort of where openness of the body, the readability of the body, which was kind of central to ballet, it's sort of exaggerated in the can-can. Um, by the first decade of the 20th century, however, the reputation, or at least possibilities, of the modern dance, and by extension, the modern female dancer, had radically shifted, and along with it, the ways in which dance began to signify in various forms of visual representation. Once the sign of a kind of corrupt or sexualized urban modernity, the female dancer now often projected a transformative, progressive vision of the body as liberated and expressive, in step with the modern world, but also in harmony with nature and quite often the classical past. And here, of course, is Isadora Duncan performing in the Theater of Dionysus um, in about 1903 in a photograph actually made by her brother. The sea change in attitudes towards dance and the body of the dancer is due in no small part to the impact of new forms of dance created by figures like Loie Fuller, but also and especially Isadora Duncan. But their successes relied upon a growing fascination with body, bodily gesture and movement itself as the hallmark of all that was modern. As disenchantment with rationality and an intellectual culture began to spread at the turn of the century, the values of spontaneity, intuition, a kind of raw, vital physicality began to take precedence over the values of order and reason. And this sort of coincided, I'm very summing up here kind of complicated um, philosophical and intellectual currents, but this kind of coincided with the gradual shift away from a Cartesian model of the mind-body duality in which the body is kind of simply a mute instrument of the mind towards a concept of subjectivity or a concept of the idea of the self as really constituted by these dynamic interchanges between the physiological realm and the psychological realm. So movement, in these terms, really served as a marker of identity, a kind of visible manifestation of the link between the mind and the body. 
Now, this fascination with the body's movement at the end of the century fueled an explosion of interest in silent modes of communication and representation, such as pantomime, acrobat acrobatics, film, and dance, all media which emphasize the body's capacity to signify through material and nonverbal means. And here is a wonderful photograph by Nadar of the, um, the mime, Charles de Barreau, um, in the probably 1850s, 1855, I think. Um, but certainly by the end of the century, a fascination with the communicative potential of the body as opposed to the voice could be seen across a variety of practices, not only from symbolist theater where gesture became um, as important as words, um, but also even in popular culture. And I'm showing you here two wonderful posters by Jules Charest on the left. It's an advertisement for something called a pantomime lumineuse, which is kind of an early form of experimental animation. Um, and on the right, an advertisement for a spectacle, a concert. But what I want to point to here is how significant the bodily gesture is in both of these. That, in fact, you know, Charest's kind of producing dancing posters, and it should not surprise us that advertising found this economy of gesture and pose much more effective than just words alone. Of course, this was a period that also um, placed greater emphasis on physical activity and movement, and indeed witnessed the many kinds of uh, new physical culture movements, a great number of them actually aimed at children and at women and sort of aligned with progressive ideas about the links between physical and moral health. And so it was kind of out of these various strands and currents that Duncan's dance was first forged. Duncan, a Northern California native who's born into a middle-class artistic San Francisco family in 1877, began what was called natural dancing at an early age. And uh, she kind of created an amalgam of different dance traditions with her own spin on it. Now, she later claimed to have rejected all forms of traditional dance, but her aesthetic was actually forged out of three existing movement practices, social dancing, ballet, and physical culture, which she then utterly transformed into something new. And I'm not going to belabor this point here, but it's important to note that her modernism was, like many forms of modernism, as much a reshaping of tradition as it was a rejection of it. And here I'm just showing you an early photograph. I think it's 1896, so she's about 18 here, um, or 18 maybe, um, playing a fairy at the Midsummer's Night Dream performance. So it's clearly a much more kind of traditional um, balletic form, which she claims later to have completely rejected. Uh, Duncan brought many changes to high art dance. She freed the body from tight costumes and shoes, uh, at once echoing and giving strength to contemporary movements to free the body from constricting corsets and the like. And she celebrated physical vigor and power over delicacy of gesture and technique. Again, here her dance also echoed these contemporary movements embracing physical culture. Um, and I'm showing you uh, some, a drawing, um, pen and ink, by Abraham Walkowitz, who was kind of a, an American artist in the circle of Alfred Stieglitz, who was absolutely fascinated with Duncan, made um, over 5,000 drawings of her in his lifetime. And I think you can begin to see here that he was really focused on the kind of the, the power of her movement, you know, that she's actually moving through space, and the kind of physicality of the body. Duncan's main contribution to modern dance, however, was her proposal that the drama of the kinesthetic, in other words, the drama inherent in a moving, gesturing body interacting with space, 
was entirely sufficient as an art form unto itself. Rejecting the conventions of balletic movement, the stiff torso and articulated limbs, in favor of a whole body expressiveness emerging from the center, which he called the motor power of movement, she transformed the body on stage into the seemingly transparent vehicle for the expression of the self in all of its changing and mobile moods. Constantly moving and subject to swings of emotion, she seemed to perform the drama of subjectivity, in other words, the drama of the modern self, understood in contemporary psychological and social theory, not as a cohesive and stable and unchanging entity, but rather as a series of psychic states and erotic drives informed by and expressed through the body. And as consciously stylized as her gestures and her dance actually was, they read as authentic, spontaneous expressions of the self. And it was this genuineness that so greatly appealed to a culture which increasingly found language to be non-transparent, which saw language and old modes of representation on the stage as kind of compromised modes of expression, subject to all kinds of exaggerations and co-optations. So if language could no longer offer kind of clear meaning, much less truth, perhaps the body could. And here are two more drawings of Walkowitz, and I think you can begin to see also the way in which her dance appealed to artists looking for a kind of um, increasing abstraction, but still grounded in the material body and kind of um, grounded in, in nature. Duncan achieved this performance of authenticity and spontaneity in several ways. First, she used utilized space and gravity, as well as form-revealing costumes, to assert the plasticity and concreteness of the body. She shunned complicated costume and stage design. She usually danced on kind of a bare stage with simple blue curtains in order to emphasize the full presence of the body moving through space. And rather than acting out plots and stories, she expressed states of being, joy, terror, fear, desire, and in this way, stripping the self of incidental narrative to find the kind of primal basis for identity and experience. Thus, while her dance did not contain narrative in a conventional sense, they were not without meaning. And according to her viewers, they powerfully conveyed and actually transferred emotion onto her audience. That she was successful in making her body appear at once as a kind of plastic form and a transparent vehicle for emotion can, I think, can be gleaned from the numerous representations of her. Here, of course, are the drawings by Walkowitz, who first saw Duncan, in fact, performing in Rodin's studio in 1906 and swiftly pronounced her his muse. And as I've said, he sort of produced these obsessive number of drawings over her. And here we have, um, he did a kind of series in which her body became increasingly more and more abstract. And so looking at this, it might be hard to, to find where, where you know, the original dancer comes in. But I think, but anyway, in one of the registers, you can sort of see some of the curving movements that, that we saw in earlier drawings. And in others, of course, he's really kind of found her central forms and created an abstract art. Uh, another artist, um, Jose Clara, was also fascinated with Duncan. And here he focuses on the expressive use she made of her torso. In these images, the entire body conveys force and movement through the simultaneously elongation of its planes and one, the torso sort of in one direction, but it's counteracted by an oppositional twist of the head or the arms. And 
and um, you know here the, the op it conveys openness, directionality, and force, and her whole body is the expressive gesture here. It's not just the arms or the legs. Um, and performing a kind of combination of control and abandoned, um, or hold and release. She actually sort of created one of the defining characteristics, not only of her dance, but something that would really um, be picked up by later choreographers like Martha Graham and Doris Humphrey. And this is, of course, a movement motif, we might say, that condenses temporality into a pose, where it kind of suggests the before, the during, and the after within a single image. And I think this is also one of the reasons why so many artists were fascinated with her dance, because they were trying to also convey that same sense of movement and time within a single image. Another major contribution of Duncan's dance was the way that she interacted with space. Emphatic, upward-facing gestures, long diagonal and horizontal runs and walks across the stage. And she utilized different spatial and visual levels, sometimes crouching low, sometimes quite high. Um, and these kinds of movements served as a metaphor for the interaction of the self with the world. The action, release, and uh, action, reaction, and release, fall elements of her dance also implied a kind of reciprocity between the body and its surroundings. And a second level of um, dynamic interaction was formed by her relationship to music. Now, Duncan didn't dance to music in the conventional sense that the ballet ballerinas had you know, in the 19th century. She often chose flowing, dynamic, and specifically non-balletic um, uh, music, uh, like Chopin, which sort of complemented and reinforced her exploitation of the inherent drama of rhythmic movement. And finally, she used the center of her body not just as the pivot for arms and legs, but as the place where movement, direction, and force was generated. Even a simple gesture of the arms came from the torso and moved outward. And using her center in this way, Duncan's dance appeared as a natural and spontaneous movement of the entire body, one that appeared to originate from inside the body and move outward, a literal performance of expression, or of the inner self or soul revealed through bodily movements. Now, what appealed so much to modern viewers and artists about Duncan's dance was not only that it, appealed, it appeared natural and authentic, an authentic expression of the self, in contrast to the kind of studied artificiality of earlier dance practices, but that in her constant mobility, her drama of movement, her body, although draped in classical robes, as you see here in Steichen's photograph of Duncan at the Pantheon, her body seemed to express the very nature of modern life itself, for it was in the first decade of the century that a number of philosophers and writers and artists and scientists began to explore motion, shift, flux, dissolution, vibration, and especially rhythm as kind of the underlying condition not only of the individual body, but of the world and that body's relationship to the world. And Duncan was well aware of these intellectual currents. She integrated them not only into her dance practices, but she also spoke about them frequently and wrote about them. And um, she was a reader of, of Henri Bergson and Friedrich Nietzsche especially. Now, Duncan's presentation of the body as a constantly mobile source of expression found its echo not only in philosophy, as I've just suggested, but also the visual arts. And there were a number of artists at this moment who expressed in different ways this concept of motion, of rhythm, of dance, as central to modern identity. And um, here I'm just showing you um, the, a journal um, 
called Rhythm, um, which was founded in 1911 by a group of artists living in Paris who were very much informed by the, theor the philosophy and theories of Henri Bergson. And among these artists was the Scottish painter J.B. Ferguson. Um, the group who, who started this journal um, really proposed that rhythm, of course they entitled rhythm, was sort of the underlying element of all the arts. And they were very much influenced by Bergson's notion of elan vital, or kind of a vital force essential to creativity. So it should come as no surprise that dance, understood as the corporeal expression of rhythm sort of par excellence, held pride of place in both the journal and in the artwork of its affiliated members. Now the title of Ferguson's painting, a kind of bold and brash evocation of these kind of Dionysiac revels, is, is called Les Yeux, or the healthy ones. And it suggests more specific sources also in physical culture practices that were popular at the time. And painted in 1913, Les Yeux was probably inspired by the contemporary practice of Eurythmics, a sort of pedagogical form of rhythmic bodily and musical training developed by the Swiss musicologist Emile Jacques Delcroix. And essentially, this was kind of an intense and varied program of training, which included musical and physical education. Um, but it, its overall aim was to educate the body to healthily express its own rhythmical patterns. And in so doing, it would sort of be in harmony with the world. It would kind of heal the, the rifts and the wounds of modernity, where the self was felt to be kind of um, in conflict with the world. And this was so, some way of sort of finding the inner rhythm, and it would be the basis for creativity, but also kind of for a more harmonious physical and one imagined psychological existence. Um, so in other words, it's kind of the ultimate goal was not physical, but a sort of social one. But however modern in its emphasis on rhythmic expression, the iconography of Eurythmics, like that of Duncan's dancing, was nevertheless saturated with references to the classical age and loosely modeled after their 19th century's imagination of Greek dance. And here's um, a very poor, I apologize in advance for the quality of a lot of these um, slides. They come from old research files. But here's a, a photograph of some dancers in the early 1920s practicing Eurythmics. Um, and in fact, the rhetoric behind a lot of Eurythmics and similar practices was the implication that this would return the modern, sort of enervated body to the natural harmony and expressivity that the ancient Greeks were imagined to have possessed. Like the Arcadian dream of vitality and harmony in the painting Les Yeux and in Isidore Duncan's performances, these new forms of rhythmic dancing appeared not only as the ideal marriage of classical and modern, but in fact proposed dance, or at least movement, as really the salve that could heal the rift between a harmonious past and a fragmented present. This dream, that classicism and modernism could be reconciled, was, of course, a very powerful strain at this part of the century and influenced not only practices like this, but the work of authors like Mallarmé or composers like Debussy or painters like Cezanne and so forth. I'm sure you will have heard about that and we'll hear about that in your other lectures. Now, if Duncan's dance practice relied upon a modern expression of the self married to this fantasy of a kind of primal, we might say primitive classicism, the overall message of her dance is one of harmony, 
not only a past or present body with nature, but a kind of internal coherence to the body, an inner, inner unity of the self with the body. There were, however, a number of other proposals about the modern body's relationship to a classical past circulating in the pre-war years. And as we turn to an examination of Václav Nijinsky's choreography for two ballets, Afternoon of the Fawn and Riot of Spring, we begin to see a wholly different language of modern dance, one which, not, which offered not a vision of classical wholeness and harmony, but rather an uncanny and difficult view of the modern self as fragmented, dissociative, automatistic, a view that found much resonance with contemporary forms of painting, especially cubism and literature. We might think of the works of Richard Stein and others, for example. Um, I don't know if you'll have studied this in, in your class, but um, just a sort of brief, oh, that's fancy, a brief um, overview of the ballet is that it was really based, um, there's Mallarmé's poem, L'après-midi d'un fond. This was really a prelude to it. And the ballet is a short ballet set to Debussy's music. The um, libretto is very simple, a fond played, played by Nijinsky, spies some beautiful nymphs bathing. He watches them with erotic interests. He has a charged pas de deux with one of them, but eventually she flees. He manages to grasp her scarf and, in a famous ending gesture, appears to masturbate into it. Voyeurism, fetishism, onanism, it's all in there. But what was so discomforting about the ballet, I think, was not actually its depiction of this kind of modern Freudian sexuality, but rather the ways that it presented the body. It's using movement to suggest that the body was a kind of automata or puppet or a machine reactive to desire and impulse, and not the fully conscious and integrated self that Isadora Duncan had celebrated. And there he is in his famous final gesture um, in a photograph, a series of photographs by Baron Adolf de Meyer, um, perched of reference to the traditional vocabulary of ballet. There were no turns or extensions or displays of virtuosity, and only one little leap. Um, there was much. Um, there was not much in Fawn that could be easily identified by its viewers as dance. The dancers pivoted, swiveled, arched, knelt, and halted in parallel planes, restricting arm movements to angled, planar gestures, which had no precedence in classical ballet. Walking formed the main motif, though not just any sort of walking. The nymphs glided in parallel planes, extending their legs heel first, affecting the transition of weight through the balls of the feet with a deliberate slowness all the while directing torso and arms outward to, towards the audience. And of course, this kind of division of the body is very different than what Isadora Duncan projected, which was kind of the inner and the outer kind of all being coherent. Here you had torso one way, hips the other. Although walking served as the connective tissue between poses, Nijinsky also put stasis to dramatic use, eschewing the continuity of movement by integrating moments of stillness, long pauses, which contrasted starkly with the sort of melodic fluidity of the music, which is very soft and kind of rolling and gentle. So the movement is much more staccato in comparison to the music, which a lot of critics really abhorred, and they thought that Nijinsky had essentially massacred Debussy's beautiful score, as well as kind of the, um, the limpidity um, of Mallarmé's poem. 
unlike Isadora Duncan or other ballet Russe choreographers like M Michel Fokine, who I believe you've, you've seen the work of recently, Dijinsky did not exploit the dynamics of bodily interaction in space so much as investigate the potential of pose, gesture, or line to create static, plastic images. The rigid mobility of the upper body, accented by the hand positions of flattened or flexed palms, emphasize the angles and planes of the body, while legs bent in demi-plie contain the body within a fairly limited vertical field. And finally, feet were parallel or turned in, locking the body as if stapled to the ground. Evidently inspired by the parallel stance of figures on archaic bas-relief and vase painting, this rejection of turnout or the openness of hips and feet, which, makes, which in ballet made the body visually and metaphorically available to the viewers, also limited the body's legibility, its readability. And indeed, many critics struggling to actually understand this as ballet instead described the work as a moving freeze or a plastique anime, terms which uh, not only impute pictorial or sculptural aesthetics to the choreography, but also point towards the use of stasis as an important expressive element. While Duncan had strategically integrated moments of stillness in her dance in order to heighten dramatic effects, these really served to punctuate the otherwise continuous and dynamic unfolding of movement in space and time. But in contrast, bodies here in the afternoon of the Han moved only to return again, again, and again to stillness, as if movement itself was just a futile struggle against the primordial drive towards death. The anti-mimetic impulse of the choreography was further emphasized by the division of the body into separate zones, torso, arms, legs, pelvis, each seeming to move on its own accord. Thus, the choreography offered the image of sort of an uncoordinated ego, a self not defined by the continuously unfolding developmental movement, expanding from a center that characterized Duncan's dance, but by dislocated, repetitive, or non-signifying impulses. These kinds of movements that characterize what many um, contemporary psychologists saw as a sort of pathology of modern life, sort of hysteria, autonomism, epilepsy, and so forth. So although the choreographic language of Han insisted on the tangibility and plasticity of bodily movement with every step, it treated the body not as a natural or organically moving whole, but as a collection of sep separate parts. Arms moved like levers from the shoulder joint, the torso moved independently from the hip, and even fingers and toes maintained explicit positions, each of which was conceived and executed with cunning exactitude. Quote, like the, black, the blades of a jackknife was one, how one critic described the nymph's arm movements, and another as the scissoring of mechanical arms. Over and over again, critics were puzzled at the deliberate stylization of movement that presented the dancers as marionettes. Indeed, they were frequently compared to puppets, to statues, to automata, to machines, even one to mechanical rebuses. Uh, we might remember that just one year previously, of course, Dijinsky had danced to great acclaim the figure of Petrushka, a puppet who was tortured by the division between his sort of inner life, his desire and love for a living human, and the fact that he is trapped in an inanimate wooden body. In Afternoon of a Fawn, Nijinsky's decomposition of the body and his use of a studied, thorough stylization 
was resonant with new developments in contemporary art, and particularly Cubism. One critic, explicitly linking the choreography to modern painting, wrote that in the ballet, Nijinsky, quote, studied Betsanger and Picasso and isolates the rhythm of the body in the anatomies exhibited at the Salon des Indépendants, which was kind of the salon of avant-garde art at the time. Another critic referred to Nijinsky's use of plane geometry, P-L-A-N-E, a stock phrase in the vocabulary of analytic cubism. Jacques-Emile Blanche offered a more explicit comparison, likening Nijinsky's choreographic techniques to Matisse's painterly ones. I'm quoting here, every one of his dancers is a signpost, a symbol such as Mallarmé has delighted in. For Nijinsky, the schematic expressions of the soul substitutes for academic and conventional outpourings, just as for the neo-impressionist Henri Matisse, a geometry of patches takes the place of the secret equilibrium of values and the harmony of tones. Schematization, artificiality, uh, a naturalist, excuse me, a deliberate confusion between living and inanimate, these were not only the hallmarks of Nijinsky's choreography for Afternoon of the Fawn, but they were also the kinds of rhetoric that surrounded much avant-garde painting at the moment, especially avant-garde painting of dance and dancing bodies. And here I'm showing you the great, uh, Matisse's great uh, Bonheur de Vivre, um, shown to great shock and incomprehensibility at the Salon d'Automne in 1906, and of course, too, we should note that this, like Afternoon of the Fawn, is essentially a pastoral subject. And critics really decried this kind of modern uh, vision of pastoral in which body seemed uh, incomplete or strangely disarticulated. They had no clear relationships between each other. Um, some of the same kinds of criticisms that um, greeted Nijinsky's Afternoon of the Fawn. Um, more relevant, perhaps, is Matisse's La Danse, painted for the Russian collector Shukin and exhibited at the Salon d'Automne in Paris in 1910. I've actually been trying to figure out whether Nijinsky was in Paris at the time this was shown. Nancy and I sort of talked about this last night. And he was certainly in Paris in the summer um, when the ballet Rus had those performances, but I'm not sure whether he was around in the fall or not. But it would be interesting to know whether he saw it then or at other times. Now, Matisse was certainly not alone in his fascination with dance as subject matter and inspiration for new forms of expression. In the immediate pre-war years, dance became an increasingly popular subject matter for avant-garde painters and sculptors, among them Sonia Delaunay, Jean Messinger, Pablo Picasso, Gino Severini, Archie Penko, and the list goes on. And just to give you kind of a taste, I'm showing you um, Severini, C equals dancer. Here, even the title suggests a kind of amalgam of dance with the restless generative forces of nature. Or um, Picabia's um, Watercolor of 1913, Star Dancer and Her School of Dance. And you know, both of these are abstract works. They have breaking ties from centuries of representational practices. But what's interesting about both of these images to me is that they're not simply about dance, but they actually seem to attempt to integrate flux and movement into their practice of making. In other words, I think they suggest that dance was both a subject ma matter, but also kind of a model and technique for the production of a modern abstract art. 
an art where the body either dissolves into space or is broken up into these kind of um, constituent parts. Now, a photo spread in the journal L'Excelsior, which was devoted to the Salon de Tome in 1912, kind of the salon of uh, avant-garde art, um, just offers a, a, a sort of visual evidence of the prevalence of dance as a subject matter for avant-garde painting. And here we have, out of 10 images, um, three of dance. Um, on the upper left, we have Matisse's Capucine à la Danse. And on the right, Verhoeven's Ida Rubinstein. She was actually a dancer. And there's one, of course, somewhere else. Uh, and I think it is the one in the bottom. But anyway, somehow it didn't make it into my paper. Yes, yeah, it just that it got cut off from my paper. Um, and this photo spread um, that was sort of devoted to the new painting came with a caption, our readers may amuse themselves in deciphering these enigmatic paintings, which according to some are ridiculous to excess and others audaciously original. So it's kind of giving you just a sense of sort of, you know, the, the kind of public reaction, um, journalistic reaction at least to avant-garde art. Thank you, that's what it is. I, I can't even see it on my screen here. It's been a while since I've looked at this one. But. Of course, Cubism's proposal about the world, just like Nijinsky's choreography, was quite often subject to ridicule. And I'm just showing you this character here, sort of what the Cubists say, which essentially shows you that Cubism's stylization of the body into barely recognizable forms um, you know, was obviously something that a lot of people thought, well, my kid could do that or something. Nijinsky's ballet, too, was often subject to parody, specifically as a Cubist ballet in a 1912 music hall review. Oh, sorry, I'm just showing you the actual Cappuccino La Dance, which was um, on that bad photocopy. And here is um, uh, the page from the um, Paris Cubique, and you see that um, in one of the scenes, um, seven, or sorry, eight, starting at the top, you have Nijinsky in the first and Nijinsky in the second. And I don't know too much actually about this performance, but it's clear that it was both subject to ridicule, but ridicule as part of kind of a cubist um, deformation of the world. Now, of course, parody is often a stock response to the provocative nature of modern art, and you know, we sometimes dismiss it as the uninformed reaction of a Philistine public or a retrograde critic, but because it's so economical in its, in, in its expression and also exaggerates in order to draw out what is latent in its original object, it helps us um, understand what the cultural anxieties and sort of fantasies were that were sparked um, by these shifts in representational structures. But in the end, I don't think that uh, Afternoon of Fawn was really a Cubist ballet, not in the sense that it specifically and purposefully integrated Cubist pictorial strategies. And the Ballet Russe did eventually do one of these ballets called Parade with sets and costumes by Picasso and a libretto by Cocteau. But the critics who perceived a kinship between Cubism and Fawn should not be dismissed, for I think they were onto something. That something, I think, was a choreographic language which communicated to its viewers what it might be like if, a, if the particular set of visual techniques and attitudes that passed for cubism in 1912 were no longer restricted to the description of bodies and objects on canvas, but actually became a mode of physically experiencing relationships to objects in the world, and especially to other bodies. 
from the anatomical distortions of Picasso's girl with mandolin, whose indented breast with its slit-like nipple mimics the strings which span her mandolin, or the pneumatic edifices built up out of tubular metal forms in Leger's Exit of the Ballet Russe, Cubism's bodily imaginary consistently put pressure upon the structural oppositions between animate and inanimate, human and object. The public and critical reaction to Cubist imagery was understandably perplexed and negative, for many of these images not only propose an identity for the modern subject as fragmented and mechanical, without recognizable human qualities, but these representations also made the relations of identification and alienation, or wholeness and disintegration, that characterize the visual appearance of the works actually made it part of the disorienting experience of viewing itself. And I uh, just found this passage a while ago from um, art historian Max Kozloff's 1973 book on Cubism. Um, it has been assumed or more accurately implied that Cubism's vision of space is its real subject, whose ironies and paradoxes are demonstrated by various still life fragments. But Cubism confronts us with as many figures as still lives. And before the spectacle of the human body, we cease to be as detached as we are when contemplating images of something to eat or objects to use. Because we are so egocentric in our nervous, muscular, and social identifications with it, the image of the human body can become a remarkable index of meaning in the work of an artist, even one for whom storyline and visual illusion are not primary assumptions. So if vis viewing bodies on canvas invite a kind of identification, then I think viewing them on the stage even more so. Or put another way, I want to suggest that the choreography of embodiment in Afternoon of the Fawn generated a set of proposals about what it might be like to physically inhabit and move around in the sorts of worlds given pictorial form by a number of contemporary modern artists. Worlds where the distinctions between objects and bodies were blurred, where the erotic was sublimated to the geometric, where bodies looked and acted more like statues or machines or disarticulated puppets than living or breathing humans. Cultural discomfort and anxiety over bodily autonomy and wholeness also characterize the critical response to Nijinsky's most famous ballet, The Rite of Spring. And I think because you've already studied the choreography with Millicent Hodson earlier this semester, and some of you may have read the long review um, that I, I handed out or put online by Jacques Riviere, I'm not going to go into great length about the making of the ballet, which is incredibly interesting, but also complicated, or even all of the complex associations it forged with contemporary discourses surrounding the primitive. Um, that's always in quotes. What I want to focus on is the ways in which Nijinsky's choreography presented the body um, and why that choreography registered as so rebarbative and so difficult for so many, while for a few others, like Jacques Riviere, it heralded the dawn of a new art form one completely stripped of excess detail or style. And indeed, Riviere's long critique, which some of you may have read, is um, perhaps one of the first truly extended discussions of what is now recognized as kind of a modernist aesthetics of reduction, of simplification, of truth to materials. But that it occurred in a discussion of a dance performance is very interesting. And it points to how essential this performance, both its music and its choreography, was to broader shifts and breaks in cultural forms. 
But I think it's also compelling because as much as Revere wants to see this ballet as a kind of pure art form without reference to other traditions, but rather kind of emerging out of its own, we have to recognize that the ballet existed within and drew upon a broad set of references, and especially to the cultural fascination with the category of the primitive. And furthermore, it's evident that as much as Revere understood this ballet's powerfully new mode of representation, he also wrestled deeply with its proposals about the primitive body and what primitivism could mean to modern art. And we might want to think just more broadly about modernism, modernism's even setting in this class, um, and all the cases where this kind of modernist dream of breaking wholly with tradition, of creating a radically new art form, um, so often relied on the category of the primitive or the primordial, um, such as the case of Picasso's great Demoiselle d'Avignon and others. <coughs> this is a, a publicity photograph in the right spring. Um, like an afternoon of a fawn, but even more dramatically, movement in the right of spring annihilated classical ballet's traditions and training. Turnout um, here was replaced by blunt, asymmetrical postures, signifying introversion and vulnerability. Um, I think you can see here how unclassical and unbeautiful some of the bodily gestures were. Um, that choreography also asserted the implacable power of gravity on bodies. I mean, much of ballet is about lightness and ballon, and even Duncan's use of gravity was to convey force and movement and strength. But here, gravity really seems to be almost overcoming the dancers, constantly pulling them down, especially in the, in the chosen one solo. She is the sort of the dancer to be sacrificed at the end. The inexorability of her death is signified in this futile struggle against gravity. She keeps gesturing and jumping to the sky, but um, she's sort of constantly pulled down, and even when she lands, she doesn't land with bent legs, it's kind of this difficult, hard stamping. Um, if the body was subject to laws of gravity, it was also subject to uncontrollable impulses. And many viewers describe the movement, oh, here's the sort of images of the chosen one dancing. Um, many viewers describe the movements as epileptic, automatic, or animalistic. One critic claimed the movements caused, quote, painful, acute, psychological displeasure in the audience. I'm not kidding. Other reviewers reacted to the violence with which Nijinsky shaped the body into twisted, racked, unnatural positions. That Nijinsky violated the classical order of the body is actually the thrust of this caricature. And um, the, the, those of you who speak French will realize that it's, it's much funnier. Um, but it sort of says something like, in the ballet roof of tomorrow, you know, such as been up to now, where my foot is, there will be your hand, and where you put your nose is now where I put my ass. <laughs> so, and you just, but you really just see through the image, just, you know, the sense of um, disordering the body, replacing, and also, of course, replacing, you know, the head with the rear has all these metaphorical implications. As the critical responses to the ballet suggest, although its subject matter was about primitive ritual, Nijinsky's formal means of expression re repeatedly invoked comparisons to the fractured subjects of modernity, alienated, hysterical, epileptic, mechanical, and electrified were among the terms that critics used. And one critic, again, Jacques-Emile Blanche, a quite prescient critic, came closest to identifying the strange elision between primitive and modern when he commented that the choreographies stiff mechanical gestures were strangely suspended between the exercises of modern athletes 
and those of prehistoric creatures. In a physiological language which revealed the mechanized nature of bodily impulse, the Rite of Spring proposed an uncanny alliance between the prehistoric and the modern. Now, the uncomfortable cohabitation of primitive and mechanical that um, many detected in the ballet was not entirely foreign, for many of these same characteristics were evident in the modern popular dances like the grizzly bear and the Apache that were sweeping Paris in the years right before the war. Um, great photograph actually from the 1920s that I think communicates some of the kind of fascination um, with sort of violent forms of popular dance. Um, and we can't really underestimate the fascination and popularity of these dances um, and the sense in which they were central to what people considered modern in Paris right before the war. Um, you know, you could go to these dances at ballrooms, nightclubs, dance halls. They were dance teas, and numerous journals sprouted which featured these new dance fashions like foxtrot and tango and the and le pas d'or, the bear step. Um, and uh, many of these dances actually, which came to Paris in the years right before the war, actually had African or South American origins. They became hybridized in American cities and from there moved across the shores to continental Europe. But despite their kind of urban transnational character, when they got to Europe and especially Paris, they were often interpreted as kind of expressions of vital non-European primitivism. And this is often implicit, in fact, in the names that they're given, um, the animalistic names, foxtrot, turkey trot, bunny hug, bear step, and the cockroach. Um, not only describe the character of the movements, but also suggest the continuity between sort of dancing and an aggressive state of animality. And as in the Rite of Spring, the new dances emphasized complicated um, sort of syncopated rhythm, greater mobility of individual body parts, including pumping, shaking, and jiggling the arms, heads, and legs, and um, repetitive motion. And perhaps their greatest attraction was that they relied on kind of a pounding rhythm rather than prescribed steps to di dictate bodily expression and movement. While the Rite of Spring's mechanical frenzied rhythms resembled specific modalities of movement with several of the new dances that took Paris by storm in the pre-war years, it may also have integrated specific steps um, taken directly from one dance in particular. Um, halfway into the first section of the ballet, the first act, the section that Stravinsky entitled the Ritual of Abduction, um, features a confrontation between a group of men and a group of women. And the scene is essentially a kind of stylized rape. The men charge at and abduct the women, and they grasp them around the waist, and they flip them upside down so that they form vertical lines, and then violently flip them back over, um, ending with the women kind of splayed on the men's legs. And Millicent Hosden actually is the one who's sort of argued that this movement echoes one of the most characteristic steps of the Apache dance. I'm showing you here. And um, the Apache dance was a very popular dance um, in Paris that um, supposedly originated with these kind of warring um, sort of tribes, um, the kind of working class tribes in Paris. And they usually um, are kind of depictions of um, these violent confrontations between men and women. Sometimes it's two men fighting for a woman, and sometimes it's just a couple. But they usually end with a woman, um, you know, fighting for her life in the arms of her pimp, or you know, sort of thrown down on the floor. Um, I think the violence of the dance um, can be uh, easily gleaned in this um, 
uh, vision of the Apache dance by Bateman, which appeared in the Tatler. And of course, it was all over Europe, Paris, but also London. And um, by 1913, it was well known. There was, you know, reviews featuring the Apache. So this kind of supposedly uh, ghetto dance, we might say, really became kind of a phenomenon among all classes. Um, but it still had the power, I think, to signify an eruption of violent sexuality um, and sort of a kind of uh, cl class-based primitivism within modern culture. Um, I think that comes out pretty clearly when we look at the work of Wyndham Lewis, a British artist invo involved in the Vorticist movement. And in a series of dance studies he made between 1910 and 13, he draws upon the popular dance, and especially the Apache, to create these powerfully violent, self-consciously modern evocations of what uh, we might call the wild body, which was actually the title of a book, stories he would publish after the war. And for Lewis, popular dance and his particular brand of abstraction uh, served really as expressions of modernity, as an eruption of the primitive into the present, as a force that destroyed moribund traditions of morality, of figuration, of culture. And the pr primitive here is really figured as kind of a wellspring of vitalist energy, a counter to the neurasthenia and exhaustion of modern culture. It's another great work of um, lovers dancing. But to return to the Rite of Spring, whether or not Nijinsky deliberately drew upon popular dances or the Apache um, for its choreography is less important, I think, than understanding the ways that his choreography registered with its audiences as something akin to popular dance, at once primitive and modern, mechanical, but even more puzzling. For while the choreography suggested that within the modern body lies an atavistic core, a regressive nature that is pre-cultural, its form of primitivism appeared less an expression of vitalist energy than a kind of repetitive enslaved mechanization. Its primitivism, in other words, did not so much provide an other to modernity in the form of freedom from history, from language, from convention, as it did, to rep as it did replicate modernity's pathology at the level of the body. And indeed, all the terms that critics reached for in their descriptions of the rite of spring, automatism, hysteria, epilepsy, neurasthenia, pubis deformation, these were all the pathologies of modern life. One critic put his finger on it when he remarked that the poses danced with automatic rigidity were designed to reproduce and synthesize those unique movements which are found in our modern life. The belief that the body housed the capacity for the ultimate form of regression back to the mud and muck of the primordial stew can only obtain in a culture which, which subscribes to phylogenetic science or the belief that in evolution and, and perhaps in this case in devolution. And in this sense, the rite of spring is actually a profoundly 19th century ballet. The disciplines of anthropology, sociology, um, evolutionary biology, and psychology, which developed in the latter half of the 19th century, cast the modern self as possessing an atavistic core, an inherent substrata of biological or psychic material resistant to culture, progress, the onward march of history. Whether plumbing the unconscious for repressed archaic drives in Freud, or searching for the origins of modern religion and pagan rituals in Fraser, tracing the human race back to its biological origins, origins in the primordial stew, Darwin, or liberating the Dionysiac Superman from the chains of false morality, Nietzsche, 
A number of 19th century thinkers posited a model of the self as inherently precarious, at once poised for regeneration and expansion, but yet also always on the brink of regression and devolution. Bodily existence in the rite of spring, I argue, is similarly, similarly precarious and undecipherable. For one critic, the music and choreography served as the index of the body's mutability and unfixity, a manifestation of a threatening regression, which unleashed in the audience, quote, stamping an animal cry so as to attest to our filiation from these newly arrived ancestors. And indeed, even in Jacques Riviere's work, who understood the ballet's enormous contribution to a new form of expressive pared-down language, could not quite escape its vision of biological determinism, calling it, in the end, un ballet biologique, and deploying a series of biological metaphors of growth to describe the choreographic arrangements of bodies into shifting patterns of aggregate forms. Riviere interprets the Rite of Springs movement as replicating the original formation of the body itself at the cellular level. More prehistoric than primitive, dance here reveals the body's phylogeny deep in the primordial past. And for Riviere, the dance's insistence on the body's expression of its brute materiality over any form of symbolic language or meaning, which was in fact the key to its modernism, was nevertheless deeply discomforting. After lauding the ballet's extraordinary departure from conventions of dance, he admits, quote, at the very bottom of my immense admiration, some doubts, a certain despondency, I experienced the heaviness of physical things, a material inertia weighing upon my heart. For the first time, I sensed a desperate possibility in the theories of evolutionists. I discovered within myself the traces of a miserable and prostate, prostrate state I was taken back, maybe also prostate. I was taken back to a primal confinement. I seemed to have returned to those primeval days of anguish so far from humanity. In Riviere's interpretation, then, the capacity of dance to signify as a language beyond words, even beyond the symbol itself, is dependent, nevertheless, upon a biological materialism which negates the possibility for spiritual transcendence or meaning or even humanity. To embrace the Rite of Springs materialism as modernism meant to renounce the humanist dream of beauty altogether, which was both a liberating and terrifying prospect which is at the heart of much modernist primitivism and its compulsion to return to imagined primordial origins over and over and over again. Thank you. questions, but while you're thinking about that, I wanted to offer you as a little token of our thanks this t-shirt, which commemorates the exhibition Scandal, which is over at the library right now, at the Paterno Library, co-curated by Will Silverman and our rare books librarian, Sandra Spelt. This was designed by Claudia Moner, so Great. Thank for you. your um, Pilates class. <laughs> We do have time for a few questions. Oh, I have sprung from the sky question. Any questions? I knew I had reverted you all back to the 
primordial. I, I was curious about, you, you touched on the idea of discourses of health and the female body in the late 19th century and some of the Chere posters that you were showing. And, and I was very interested in this idea of the intersection of the sort of, you know, available and sexualized pages of many of those models in the Chere posters and this coexisting with this kind of moralizing exercise because it's good for your health idea. Have you thought about that intersection a bit more? Well, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's fascinating to look at some of the work of Chere and others, and there is this kind of discourse of hysteria, in fact, surrounding the movement of the body, the hysterics body, how it was mobile and signifying. And uh, my sense is that um, the kind of discipline of eurythmics and physical culture was meant to channel those energies into something that was productive and harmonious in society. I think there was this idea that the body, particularly the female body, was going to be full of these kinds of uncontrollable impulses. And if they were not properly channeled, you know, you became a hysteric or consumptive or something like that, um, or threatening, anarchist, whatever. And so that these models that were geared towards sort of health were also disciplinary models. Mm. I mean, they really emerged at the sort of, in, in the turn of the century with a kind of also maybe a, a technocratic ideal of really training the body to be more productive. You could look at forms of like uh, work um, rationalization like paleism and, and others and see the sort of continuity of this idea of health as actually being not just a counter kind of to Nersinia, but this idea of really channeling and, and disciplining the body. Fascinating. Uh, the idea of the Vaishnavi 19th century ballet is, is really fascinating to me because uh, the idea of the historic sheds a whole new light on the movement that was eventually I was hoping to talk to you about the Stravinsky aspect oh, of it. Oh I mean, I, I understood that he was drawing from a lot of different sort of right. folk traditions. Um, I don't know much about sort of fascination with kind of ideas of, you know, even pre-cultural music. I know that, I mean, there was an interest in kind of um, prehistory in the 19th century with all of these scientific discoveries. I mean, even Nicholas Rorick, who did the... Um, sets and design actually did a painting called Human Forefathers, which is supposed to be kind of a, a caveman painting. Yes. So uh, I haven't thought that much about it in terms yeah. of music, but it would be interesting to do more work in that area. Very interesting to continue the conversation. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. Okay, well, we're, 